Good evening. Our sermon text for this evening comes from Psalm 72. I ask if you would please to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this evening from Psalm 72. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their lives and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Thank you. You may be seated. The 19th century Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard is credited with the creation of an Advent parable telling the story of a king. Now, this king was of uncommon royal lineage, and yet the mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in the poorest village in his vast kingdom. He longed to go to this maiden and to announce his love for her, but here arose the king's dilemma, how to declare his love. Of course, he could appear before her resplendent in his royal robes and sweep her off her feet with riches. She would be certainly awed by his royal splendor and tremble at the thought of being blessed with such an amazing opportunity. She might tell herself that she would be foolish to reject such a marriage proposal, but would she love him? So you can guess his solution. This is an Advent parable, after all. The king realized that to win the maiden's love, he had only one choice. He had to become like her. Without power or riches, 
without the title of king. He had to become her equal. And to do this, he had to hide his true identity. And that's the plot of Kierkegaard's Advent parable. And at first glance, it seems to have strong biblical support painted on the canvas of Philippians 2, no less, which tells us that Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It's very natural to read Paul's words in Philippians and conclude that Jesus was the king who came in disguise. And we're guided that way by the word though or although in some English translations. It's not in the original language of the text and is inserted by some translators, I guess, to make sense of the absurdity of God becoming flesh. But in so doing, they unintentionally guide us to think that Jesus was God posing as a pauper to shield his identity from the world at large, masquerading as a humble servant until he could assert his true self as the all-powerful king. The problem with that line of thought, though, is that Paul's purpose in Philippians chapter 2 is exactly the opposite of that. Paul wasn't trying to communicate that being humble was something Jesus was pretending to be or was choosing to be for a time. He's saying it's who he is because it is who God is. If you wanted to make sense of, of what Paul is telling us in context, you wouldn't, I think, insert words like though or although. You would insert instead the word because. Because Christ was God, he veiled himself in flesh. Flesh didn't hide who God was. It demonstrated who God was. Becoming flesh isn't an absurdity for God. It's exactly the kind of thing that you would expect a God like God to do. That's why most English translations leave it alone and simply say exactly what Paul says in the text. Jesus being God humbled himself, which brings us to our text for this evening. Psalm 72 began its life among the Jewish people as a royal psalm, a psalm about the king. It was probably used as a part of coronations in ancient Israel, functioning as a sung reminder of what the Lord expected from his kings, a job description of sorts. And what kind of king then, based on that job description, was the king to be? Well, he would be the kind who would rule as God would rule, and in so doing, show the world in the flesh what God was like, a God of humility and a God of mercy. Because you see, in Hebrew thought, God was the true king of Israel, the flesh and blood kings were to only rule by virtue of God's delegated authority and by his standards. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 17, 18, upon his enthronement, the king was to be given his very own special copy of God's law, and he was to diligently study it with the aid of Levitical priests so that he could understand God's role for him as a humble, merciful, God-picturing king. And by doing this study... The king would be confronted over 
and over and over again with two words used most in Scripture paired together 90 times in the Old Testament to characterize the humble, merciful rule of God. The words justice and righteousness. So what do those words mean? Justice in the Old Testament always references championing the rights of the weak, the poor, the orphans, the oppressed folks referenced, as you noticed, frequently in Psalm 72. And the idea is very simple. If even the weakest among us are given their rights, then justice reigns for everyone. And righteousness is simply the standard of measurement for justice, the humble merciful character of God himself. So when Psalm 72 starts with the words, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, it's setting the priorities for ruling Israel as God would have it ruled. But it's also acknowledging that these priorities, in order to be met, would have to be given by God. God would have to give the king, his justice and righteousness. The human tendency is to busy ourselves shoring up our own power and our own privilege by preying on people vulnerable to our power and privilege. And despite all of their instruction to not do that, the kings of Israel shored up power and privilege and preyed on the vulnerable. The flesh that they carried always got the best of them, even the best among them. It even got to King David himself. So that's why the people started singing Psalm 72 with an eye toward a future king. The royal psalm became a messianic psalm, looking to the king who would show the world the kind of God that the Jewish kings had failed miserably at portraying. You see this longing for a future rule of justice and righteousness in almost every messianic passage in the Old Testament, including Isaiah's beloved prophecy of a son born, a child given, a prince of peace who would rule from and I quote, the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. The Jewish people looked for a king their kings could never be, a king who would rule as God would rule. And for that to happen, God would have to veil himself in flesh and do it himself. So Psalm 72 tells us why he was born poor, not to throw the world off of his scent, but so that the world would see God is one who defends the cause of the poor, Psalm 72, 4. He was revealed to culturally marginalized shepherds, not to keep his identity a secret, but so that the world would see God is one who has pity on the weak and the needy, Psalm 72, 13. And he was revealed to Gentile wise men, not as a part of God's marketing plan, to get the word out beyond Israel, but so that the world would see God is one who transcends racial barriers so that all nations would call him blessed, Psalm 72, 17. He was veiled in flesh so that the world would see that God is a God of justice and righteousness. He was veiled in flesh so the world would the Godhead see. He put skin on 
And he inaugurated his reign among the world's forgotten and despised precisely because of the kind of God that he is. Anyone who had ever read about him in the Old Testament should have concluded, well, of course he did this. That's the gist of Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's prayer and Simeon's blessing. Of course God did it this way. But most missed him. Most still do. Why? The cry for justice in our modern times isn't new. Our text proves that. The ancient tear-soaked cries of Old Testament psalmists and prophets remind us that sin has perverted justice into entrenched inequality and has perverted righteousness, what is right, into simply what I have the power to do. And it's been going on that way for millennia. So the Old Testament psalmists and prophets cried out for God to show his justice and righteousness. And when he did, most missed him. Most still do. Again, Why? Because the world doesn't want justice. We don't want justice. Listen to the conversation or the silence in the world around you. We want to reverse the flow of injustice so that the oppressed become the new oppressors, or we want to pretend that injustice and equality doesn't really exist, or we remain silent and passively preserve the very beneficial status quo. The world doesn't want justice. Not really. Nor does the world want righteousness. We don't want righteousness. We want God to reflect our character. We don't want to reflect His. We want permission is what we want. We don't want righteousness. Not really. Most missed Him and most still do because Jesus is not the kind of God we expected to see because He's not really the kind of God we want. We want a God who has His thumb on the scale of our advantage and who measures what is right by what we prefer. In other words, we wouldn't know justice and righteousness if, say, it showed up with the star shining down on it to say to the world, here it is. Oh, wait! It happened just like that. And most missed him. Most still do. We fail had justice and righteousness and desire and in practice for the same reason the Jewish kings failed at justice and righteousness and desire and practice, and for the same reason that injustice and immorality continue to run unchecked in our world. Justice and righteousness are not human qualities. Sin is. Sin is the human quality. That's why the true king bent on establishing a reign of justice and righteousness had to create a new humanity. He had to replace human hearts of selfish wickedness with his own just and righteous heart. In other words, what ails the world couldn't be addressed without dealing first with what ails humanity, sin. Jesus did come to end inequality and marginalization and racism and abortion and abuse and all of the other social evils that fill our social media feeds and inboxes. But it can only be undone by the cross. This doesn't mean that as citizens of the kingdom by virtue of Christ and the cross that we don't work to apply the principles of justice and righteousness in our communities which are our earthly homes. I'm not saying as sadly many do, that injustice is ultimately a sin problem to shoulder shrug my way out of feeling any responsibility for doing anything practically about it. But it is vital that we understand that the gospel is indispensable 
for the quest for justice and righteousness. God's offer of one, the gospel, is his solution to the other, injustice and unrighteousness. And God can't truly give us his heart of justice and righteousness unless our hearts are made ready for its presence through the cleansing power of Christ incarnate blood. But having given his heart of justice and righteousness, we will bring it to bear on the unjust and righteousness barren places of the world. We won't be able to see, for instance, economic inequality and simply throw up our hands and misquote the poor you will always have with you out of Scripture. We'll bring the light of Jesus' salvation in our message, but we'll also model God's heart of justice and righteousness in our actions so that through us the world will get a glimpse of what God is like in our flesh. We'll work to push back the spiritual darkness around us in both message and deed until Jesus returns to finally, fully, and forevermore reign in justice and righteousness. This is what God is up to in our world today. And the first step in this transformation was Jesus. God in flesh, born in a stinky barn into abject poverty and oppression, not to disguise God, but to show the world exactly what kind of God God is. And so we light the Christ candle, symbolizing the coming of King Jesus into the world. In just a moment, we'll take our light from it as a way to symbolize what we have received from him, a new heart through repentance and surrender, and we'll let it shine to symbolize that we are bringing his gospel message and his rule of justice and righteousness into the darkness that is around us.